had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9Fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Leadfin market with US editor Will Cager-Smith. So be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be checking up on the health of the CLO market following NoChu's recent departure from a CVC deal. We'll be looking at the ESG concerns surrounding Verishaw and we'll be considering subordination dynamics. We'll get to the covenant close-up soon, but first, the Levfin wrap. The primary market finds itself once again in a rough patch. There's no European high-yield issuance to speak of this week, except Stada, the German pharmaceutical giant, uh, which has had its 1.385 billion euro SSNs due 2024, which pay a 3.5% coupon. Those have been accepted for exchange and will settle on November the 2nd. At least that's the latest expectations. In loans, gambling business Entain priced a $1 billion TLB. Miraculously, the double B tranche priced with a 97.5 OID with a margin of Eurobor plus 350 bips. The credit has shrugged off ESG proponents and the UK Gambling Commission's £17 million fine slapped on it in August. The Ladbrokes and Coral owner benefits from a global scope, strong growth in US sports betting, a slight revenue uplift this last quarter and a healthy forecast as the Qatar World Cup draws near. But the market seems to think this is somewhat of an aberration. Bysiders have assumed no significant deal flow will happen this year and may not come really until the second half of 2023. Some market bears have even told Ninefin they don't think we'll see much primary until 2024. Next up, we have the Covenant Close-Up, and today with me I have the fantastic Brian Deering, co-head of European High Yield Research. Thanks so much for being with us today, Brian. Thanks, Kat. It's great to be here, as always. Fantastic. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about subordination in light of a recent deal that uh, came to market in the US. Um, So the debt funding Apollo's takeover of Embark, so that's a carve out of Lumen Technologies, didn't actually make it through the market, um, but the structure of the financing and the fate of the existing Embark debt offers a case study in savage subordination. Um, that's that's what you wrote. I, I'm seeing that Embark's notes downgraded six notches and note holders organizing and claiming that the buyout um, was actually in, in breach of, of the terms. Uh, so you, you, you wrote an incredible piece about this um, that I would recommend anyone interested to go on Ninefin to see. Um, but Brian, it'd be great to, if you could explain to us why this one's so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, and uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, they were downgraded six notches, which is pretty intense. And so if you look at the pricing, they went from just over 70 points down. Now, I believe today they're trading around 39. So even though the deal was uh, pulled, the structure of this deal is probably going to remain the same. Um, however, they end up funding this. Um, and so even if it's not a, a high yield bond in the public markets, 
the existing notes are still going to be, as you said, savagely subordinated. So we thought it was really interesting to write about so that people understand what happened in this structure and how it might be replicated or done across other deals. And really what we're talking about here is the takeover of a carve-out that already had debt. And that debt was issued in 2006 as a 30-year bond. And so it had really cheap pricing. And so from the perspective of Apollo, they want to leave it in place. But at the same time, they need to raise a whole bunch of new debt, and they want that new debt to have the best price possible, so they needed to give it the best possible credit support. So what they did was they issued um, at a new sort of hold co-level that's going to be doing the acquisition. Um, that's where they would have been issuing the bonds, the TLB, and incurring an RCF. And I suspect, however, they end up uh, financing this. That's where the financing will, will be anyway. And what they did was they basically issued, they would have issued the debt, and then they would just be skipping over the subsidiary that issued the prior debt and getting guarantees of that debt from the subsidiaries of the old issuer. So those are the subsidiaries that actually have the operating assets and that kind of stuff. So if we take a step back, what that means is the subsidiaries are now providing credit support to hold code debt, undercutting the value that they would be providing to their direct parent, which is the existing issuer of the old notes. So what that does is it destroys the value of the assets that the old notes had to claim from their subsidiaries, and it just hands it to the parent, which is obviously great for the, uh, the issuer of the new notes, uh, meaning that they can get a better, uh, better deal on the market, which is obviously a very challenging market right now. And we thought this was, this is obviously a really fascinating structure, and it's pretty bad for the old issuer, but how could they do this? Well, the old issuer originally was an investment-grade company back in 2006 when they issued the 30-year note. And so investment-grade notes don't have a lot of covenants in them. And what that means is there was no protection from their subsidiaries granting guarantees or incurring other debt. So they can go ahead, give the parent hold code this guarantee, and um, improve the position of the new issuer. But what's unique, I think, here is that they've left the existing notes in, as I said. So they've left them in. Now they're in a much worse position. They're trading down. They've been downgraded. Um, and so the, the existing note holders um, pulled together a letter and they sent it through their lawyers to, to Apollo, basically saying, look, this is in violation of the, the, the um, documents. And I think they've also claimed a few other you know, things like fraud or you know, um, other common law claims, which uh, we won't comment on here. But you know, at the end of the day, in, my, in the article, we go through pretty nitty gritty um, how the covenants should be thought about. And frankly, I don't think they have many legs to stand on. There's not a lot for them to argue. They basically have to argue very, very uh, nuanced points about how these guarantees might actually be considered security. Um, the only real covenant that the old bonds had was that you couldn't grant security uh, over some of these assets. And so they have to kind of shoehorn it in and say, actually, even though these are guarantees, they're really more like security. I don't think that's really going to fly because those, those covenants are separate for a reason. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's not particularly complex, but I think it's really, really fascinating. And it's given the, the nuance of being an investment-grade issuer um, doing this, uh, that's then a fallen angel, which is then being taken over by a sponsor who puts on some Holco debt. It's maybe not going to apply in tons of situations, but the principles apply, which is how can a group um, incur new debt that gives better credit support to the new debt 
than the existing debt while leaving the existing debt in place. You can kind of think about this in a normal deal uh, when you think about permitted liens, which are allowed to be incurred on non-collateral assets or non-guarantors incurring debt um, within a restricted group. All of these concepts allow an issuer to incur debt that actually isn't, um, you know, isn't prevented. Um, and those, those uh, new creditors might be in a better position or at least in a good position relative to the, to the assets that, they, you know, that they're concerned with at whatever subsidiary the, the debt is incurred at. Etc. Our brilliant colleague, Caitlin Carey, and she actually noticed another issuer, Carnival, had the optionality in their docs uh, to, at the time she said, she put it like this, sweep creditors collateral overboard. Uh, and that was back in February. Uh, so if you were not convinced of her brilliance already, then that should really tip you over the edge because that deal and that fear has now materialized this week. We've put a legal quick take out on that, so do please check it out on ninefin.com. Um, but Brian, is Carnival's deal a similar situation to Brightspeed? What they did there is a little bit different, um, but kind of cool in the same way, which is instead of putting debt at a parent hold co, they put parent debt at an SPV subsidiary, which is actually a restricted subsidiary for the purposes of their existing debt, which is quite a lot. Um, but what they did was their documentation allows you to move assets to non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries. So they, they put 12 new assets, uh, 12 big ships into this SPV, and then they raised $2 billion of debt um, against those ships. Now, the new debt isn't secured because otherwise they'd have to give security to some of their existing notes. So they avoided that by just putting it in an SPV. But what they're getting to take advantage of, and which is probably a little bit harder to follow unless you look at the structure chart, is that these new notes will be structurally senior to the existing notes. So they're lower down in the in the corporate chain. And if you're lower down in the corporate chain, you're closer to the assets. So um, the reverse of your intuition is correct, which is the closer you are to an asset, the more likely you are to get repaid. So their, their new $2 billion of debt is in an, uh, an issuer that only has 12 ships, but they're the only debt there. So they get all of the ships, uh, the value of the ships, if they were ever to go insolvent, for example. And as we mentioned in our quick take, they have a few covenants to protect the, the, the new creditors from you know, having other liens or debt placed at that issuer. But ultimately, the, the new creditors are in a great position because they're getting roughly $8 billion worth of assets um, against their $2 billion of debt. And um, that's a pretty interesting structure. Again, most deals have capacity for issuers to incur non-guarantor debt. Um, and again, this are, there's no security here, so we're not concerned about liens. So, you know, while these are unique situations that are being done by, by companies that are perhaps in trouble, these kinds of situations can happen in a lot of deals. And I think it's important for people to keep in mind, um, you know, how issuers might be using their covenants in the future. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG section of the podcast. Today with me, I have a debut commentator, ESG analyst, Oliver Wise. Thank you so much for joining us today, Oliver. No, thanks for having me on the podcast. So today we're going to be speaking about Verishore. Uh, it's a security alarms business and it came to market recently with a financing package. Uh, my first question, Oliver, would be, uh, what do you think are the biggest material concerns here for the business? Yeah, so there are a number of material concerns here for the business. Um, 
currently um, they're actually under investigation from the Swedish authority for privacy protection. Uh, and this is following publication, publication from a Swedish media source regarding anonymous allegations that Verishore employees had saved and shared sensitive images that they received via the security systems. Um, this is obviously quite alarming because if Verishore are found to be guilty of this, um, then this would be a breach of GDPR, uh, which could result in a fine of 20 million or 4% of their annual revenue, whichever is higher. Um, obviously, we still don't know whether this is true. Um, so obviously, we're still waiting the result of this investigation. Um, there are also a number of instances of employee misbehavior that are quite concerning. So in 2017, the, the firm was actually found guilty of um, using fraudulent sales techniques out in Spain in order to um, uh, sell more alarms. Uh, and then in 2019, um, they, uh, one of their employees actually won a sexual harassment case and the company was forced to pay compensation of 5,000 uh, pounds. And then in 2019, um, there was also an issue uh, whereby an employee um, damaged customer property in quite an abnormal uh, offense. Uh, and all of these could indicate issues in um, talent acquisition or uh, employee vesting processes for, for certain roles. Um, there's also been quite a major governance issue that the employee, the, the company has been involved in. Um, the company was actually fined um, 760 million Norwegian kroners in 2017 by the Norwegian Competition Authority for illegal market sharing. Um, given the size of this fine, this is quite concerning, obviously, uh, if future similar incidents um, took place as well. Um, this business is 500 million euro SSNs. Did price, uh, which is saying something in this current market, albeit they did pay through the nose, uh, it pays a 9.25% coupon. The company must have a pretty good response to some of these allegations. What has the company had to say about them? Yeah, so we did actually com contact the company with regards to all of these incidents. And um, firstly, sort of looking at uh, the ongoing investigation regarding the sharing of sensitive images, Verishaw actually told us, and it's, this is also included within um, the OM, um, that they have conducted their own extensive internal investigation regarding um, this issue and that actually they found no evidence um, that this took place. Uh, and for that reason, they don't recognize um, these allegations that sensitive images were shared uh, and they actually welcome the investigation. Um, with regards to uh, sort of the multiple instance of employees misbehavior, Verishaw actually argue that these are all isolated instances that don't reflect the company's values uh, and that all of these issues have been addressed by the company. Um, and then um, with respect to the competition breach, uh, the company has confirmed um, with Ninefin that it disagrees um, with the ruling. And that actually after an initial appeal, they chose not to further appeal uh, and instead to pay the fine to allow them to put this lengthy process behind them. Uh, and that was so that they can place all their focus on delivering peace of mind to their customers, families, and small businesses. They also stated that there's been no other challenges by a competition authority pertaining to its conduct anywhere. Has the company presented any forward-looking plans 
to improve on any of these issues? Well, with regards to uh, the investigation on company privacy, Verisure obviously doesn't actually recognize these allegations. Uh, and so any forward-looking plans aren't actually related to this investigation. But of relevance is that um, the group actually has a privacy program uh, and, the com and within this, the company has a camera data privacy task force uh, that is actually tasked specifically with the coordination of camera privacy related topics. Um, with regards to the employee issues of, of misbehavior, um, again, as I mentioned before, the company doesn't see these as big issues as it argues that they are all isolated incidents that don't reflect the company's values. Nevertheless, the company does have a compliance system in place, including a group code of conduct, as well as best commercial practices standards that are reinforced by training. Um, to add to that, it also has a whistleblower platform called Speak Up, which is available to employees and certain third parties uh, if they wish to raise concern about possible misconduct, misconduct within Verishaw. Um, uh, and then finally, um, to discuss the, the competition breach, uh, the company did not actually present any forward plans to prevent this type of issue from recurring in the future, um, but that might be because um, they actually disagree with the decision. Um, and obviously also they, 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 they stated to us that there's been no other challenges by a competition authority pertaining to its conduct uh, anywhere else. Next up, we have the deep discussion where we discuss a topic a little bit more deeply. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by US editor Will Cager-Smith. Thanks, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Will. Thank you for being here. It's, it's great to see you over in New York. Yes, I'm very happy to be here as well. So we're going to be speaking about the CLO market. There's been a lot of chatter recently about Norin Chukin, otherwise known as Nochu the Japanese bank that is a big anchor investor in AAA CLO debt. So there was news last week that Nochu pulled out of a European CLO that CVC was issuing, and they pulled out at the last minute. Now, that's kind of very unlike Nochu, as far as I understand. It's, it's not really the way that it tends to do business. Um, and as you can imagine, it got people talking. Uh, Will, you've just been at the ABS East Conference in Miami, where there's always a big CLO contingent. What was the word on Miami Beach about the Nochu situation? Yeah, to be honest, the overall impression I got was that the, the Nochu stuff was a bit of a, a nothing burger. Um, the big news around Nochu for the CLO market was really a couple of years ago, when in late 2019, Sorry, in early 2019, Nochu held roughly a fifth of the global AAA market. So it was a big player. And then later that year, it began tapering off its investments for, for various reasons, but largely because it was under a lot of pressure from Japanese regulators uh, to, to kind of pull back its involvement in that market where they kind of felt like it was a, a whale in a, very, in a, in a small pond. Um, so they began tapering off investments and they sort of let their portfolio shrink naturally through redemptions. 
And then late last year, Nochu started re-upping again. Um, so it, it rolled over one of its investments in an Octagon CLO that was being reset as opposed to taking a redemption, which is what they'd been doing for, for a couple of years. And Nochu has been, you know, kind of back to their relatively normal self. Since then, they've been pretty active um, in, in buying new triple O debt and kind of continuing to, to be active in the market. So, yeah, the fact that it pulled out of that CVC deal was kind of unexpected. And it seems to have come as a surprise even to Nochu. Um, they, they pulled out of the deal, as I understand it, when the, the book was already subject. So it was it was basically a done deal. So, yeah, definitely unexpected. But I think there's probably a less sensational explanation behind all of this than you know, Nochu has suddenly changed its view on the CLO market. Right, right, right. This is to do with the way Nochu commits to new deals, right? They always commit early and at a certain level, which works when markets are steady. But they really haven't been steady recently, have they, Will? No, they haven't. Um, yeah, so that, that's exactly right. Nochu generally commits orders a month or so in advance of execution, and they agree, agree on pricing then. So when quasi Kwarteng announced the UK's disastrous mini budget debacle in late September, which I should note, just before we began recording has has taken has claimed the scalp of Liz Truss, the PM who um, who put quasi Kwarteng in, in charge of the economy. Um, so the, the, the mini budget, which was pretty radical, um, ended up nearly crashing the UK pension fund market. Pension funds were forced to sell assets to meet margin calls. And those assets included senior CLO tranches. So that pushed spreads on AAA CLO debt significantly wider. So essentially, it's likely that the gap between the pricing that Nochu had previously committed to with CVC before the pension fund debacle and the pricing that the market was now dictating after the mini budget had made the market fall out of bed was just too wide. And in a situation like that, it's kind of understandable that they might pull an order because of the magnitude of, of that move. So probably more of an emergency measure driven by market moves as opposed to a fundamental change of heart on CLOs. Yeah, and that's a view that most of the people I spoke to about this in Miami seem to share. Most of them characterize this as a pause as opposed to Nochu pulling back from CLOs in a more kind of long-term structural way. Uh, if it's worth anything to our listeners, a securitization icon, Owen Sanderson, agrees. Um, but I guess time will tell. What other color did you pick up at the conference in terms of the health of the new issue CLA market? Yeah, so the general color was that there are plenty of warehouses open and that while pricing a CLO is taking longer than it used to, especially if you're a less well-known manager kind of outside the top tier, um, the feeling is that the market is still pretty robust for now. So some managers have had to resort in the past few months to some non-traditional methods to price deals, such as splitting warehouses into two or even just terming out a warehouse with very expensive AAA debt right now and planning to refinance that debt down the road when the market improves a bit. But one point that we did hear time and again at the conference was that even though this year has been slower than last year for CLO issuance, last year was a record year. It was absolutely huge in terms of volumes. So on a historical basis, this year actually isn't too shabby either. It's 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 up there in terms of the kind of like top five most busy years for, for CLOs, despite the fact that the market has been very stop start. 
But the one thing I will say is that CLO managers were pretty resigned to the expectation that loan defaults are going to be a lot higher going forward and the third quarter earnings will probably show a lot more stress than the second quarter. Okay, so if third quarter earnings are a lot worse and the outlook really starts to darken, what does that mean for loan portfolios? Well, it obviously raises the prospect of more defaults and obviously before defaults come downgrades, And CLOs are generally performing credit investors rather than distressed debt investors. So for now, the prospect of downgrades is is maybe the more pressing concern for CLO managers. They can only hold a certain amount of triple C debt before they have to start taking action and and managing that that proportion of triple C debt down. Generally, that is set at less than 10% of the total portfolio that can be in in triple C. So if downgrades really start to tick up, then they're going to have to really get to work quite hard to manage those exposures. And one point we heard that is making some people a little nervous is the fact that liquidity in the loan market is pretty poor right now. So dealers are running quite flat inventories and and that makes it quite that makes it harder to trade in and out of loans, you know, quickly. Um so that could be a problem if downgrades really start to accelerate, but Generally, people felt like this impending recession is likely to be more of a a sort of slow squeeze rather than the very dramatic kind of cliff face we saw when when COVID hit and suddenly downgrades went through the roof almost overnight. So the hope is that CLO managers will have time to manage those exposures away without running up against structural limitations that impact investor distributions. Right. Okay. so what about docs? Over in Europe, uh, loan documentation has got pretty loose, and I think it's actually even worse on this side of the pond from what I understand, at least for some of those loans that were issued before this year. How does that impact expectations around loan defaults and recoveries? Yeah, that's a very good point, and it's one that came up in a lot of conversations I had in Miami. So not only are there a lot of loose docs out there, but those deals actually comprise a greater proportion of the loan market than they did a year or so ago. Basically, the market now is more skewed towards lower rated borrowers, partly as a result of the recent slowdown in issuance over the past few months. And those borrowers are more likely to be backed by PE firms that might be inclined to use those loose stocks to preserve value. So there could be some quite testy interactions between sponsors and lenders over the next few months. Exciting times. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks for having me. And that's all we have time for this week. And if you do want to read more about some of these situations, head to ninefin.com slash insights, where you can see some of our content in front of the paywall. Or you can drop us an email at team at ninefin.com. We're always keen to hear your suggestions for topic ideas, your comments on our discussion, and your feedback on the platform. If you like this podcast, don't forget to like and share it. Tune in for the US edition next week. I'll be back the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.